Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. So when COVID-19 hit the United States in 2020, it affected almost every aspect of our daily lives, including the meat industry, which was no exception. We saw the supply shortages, and we finally saw something that drew some attention to the despicable conditions in slaughterhouses and in meatpacking factories. We saw factory workers who were forced to stay on the line because meat companies were exporting more than ever, and of course, because profits were high. In spite of a global pandemic, in spite of the risk to the workers and their co-workers and the people consuming the meat. This comes amidst decades of allegations of manipulation, price fixing, wage fixing at nearly every level of the meat industry. And let's factor climate change into this crisis and we can see the threats to food production as we know it. So how bad was it? How unsustainable is it? How should this industry operate moving forward? And at this point, is there even such a thing as good meat? Chloe Sorvino leads the coverage of food, drink, and agriculture over at Forbes, and you've seen her stuff on NPR, Women's Wear Daily, The Financial Times. Her new book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat, will change the way you look at meat in America as she reveals the greed and the corruption and the dangers to consumers. What a pleasure to welcome Chloe Sorvino to SiriusXM. Well, thank you so much for having me. We are really cratering towards this food insecure future, and I just really need to tell as many people as possible about it. Well, and I thank you for doing it. This book is one of those books that's uh, completely terrifying, and I recommend it to everybody. You, You open with the pandemic. And obviously, the problems that you go into, the environmental toll of meat and, and all the consolidation we've seen in the meatpacking industry, that all existed, of course, well before COVID hit. So I guess my, my first big question is, what was it in the last couple of years that was the turning point for the meat industry? Yeah, many of these sectors in the meat industry, beef, pork, chicken, They've been consolidated for several decades, but there have been new drivers of consolidation, new companies coming in like JBS, which is one of the companies that I feature now the world's largest meat packer, but started out a small, small butcher operation in, in Brazil. But this new consolidation, especially as these bigger meat packers have been able to withstand some of the stress from drought and other environmental challenges that already are happening have led them to continue to squeeze out more and more producers even you know to this day i mean again jbs just had an acquisition just this week that 
is creating more consolidation in the pork industry. Yeah. And of course, there's there's all the environmental consequences on top of all this perfect storm that we're seeing. And then I, I think the COVID really shone a light on all the waste that are happening because of the shutdowns and the supply chain backups. Yeah. Let's keep talking about pork because Please. you have their estimates were in the pandemic saying some 10 million hogs weren't going to be able to hit their slaughterhouses because there were these backups because workers weren't showing up for work. So many were getting sick and others were being forced essentially to stay on the line and being put in harm's way because these companies wanted to make more profits and keep exporting meat. Um, but so in pork, you know, we have millions of hogs and even if it's a low estimate, take a conservative estimate, hundreds of thousands, those that's say maybe 29,000 pounds of meat were wasted on the very conservative end. And that's that's millions and millions of tons of industrial produced corn and soy that created a lot of soil erosion, water Mm -hmm. pollution, devastation that is already irreversible damage that we're not going to be able to fix as we continue to have crisis after crisis waiting us. To say nothing of, of, you know, the tragedy of, of the lives of these creatures going to waste, you're right. All the money and resources that were used in their farming, which is already such a crucial risk uh, to our environment and is already something that's becoming increasingly unsustainable due to climate change. I mean, your book's incredible. It explores so many aspects of the modern meat industry, and it's going to be unpleasant for a lot of people to really, really face it. I, I'm curious. I mean, you've been doing this for Forbes for nine years. How uncomfortable are Americans in talking about meat and where it comes from in your experience? Extremely uncomfortable. Americans don't have any idea really where their meat comes from. And while that's hurting them and hurting everyone around how production is being made, it's making a lot of others really, really rich. And there's just these crazy dichotomies that I've been seeing. And at the same time, you have in America super highly vitriolic fights over meatless Mondays and Mm -hmm. this history where, you know, uh, people really don't keep politicians in if they're unhappy about the meat supply or unhappy about how expensive meat is. It creates political unrest in, you know, different societies around the world. And there's countless examples of that that I mentioned in the book, but particularly in the U.S., there's this crazy history of it. And it's driven our political economy and, you know, just the foundation of eating in America for decades. It's going to be really hard to untangle. Yeah, you know, and the corporate power is so huge. The the lobbying power is so huge. I think back to, you know, Oprah's lawsuit over burgers or when Michelle Obama first became first lady and said her entire mission was all going to be about getting people to eat healthier foods. And then Big Agra came down hard on the White House and suddenly Michelle Obama was saying, let's move, exercise. And the entire subject of the healthiness of the food we consume was taken off the table. Absolutely. You know, I cite in the book, actually, in the JBS chapters, Mary Nestle's uh, quote in a book from when she was on a roundtable with Michelle Obama for the Let's Move and her astonishment when they were essentially debating and begging big ag and big food to not put sugar on the table not and to stop marketing that to children. And essentially the big food companies at the table said, no, they refused to do that because at the end of the day, they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to continue to increase profits and to continue to increase returns. And that is that, you know, that's where we're spiraling towards this unsustainable future, because with every quarterly earnings statement, we get further and further from a sustainable model. And there will always be that pressure from these publicly traded companies at the same time. 
as it's ripping, you know, health from communities, but also ripping the environment away from where we really need it to be. Yeah, that's what's so scary. I mean, these these big companies are not responsible, of course, to their customers or their employees, and they're not responsible for public health and couldn't care less about it. I mean, it is all about the profits, and they made a lot of more money during the pandemic. And and I want to ask you about the, the consolidation, because that's what's scariest to me. If there's anything scarier than the fact that the average hamburger could have meat from 100 different cows in it which most Americans don't know and don't think about. I mean, it used to be, you know, processing plants all over the country, and now it's just a few, which makes it all the more dangerous if there's a pandemic and someone on one of the lines in these very few processing plants is sick. But to me, one of the themes that just kept hitting me was how you focus on the consolidation that's happening in the meatpacking industry. I mean, they're just getting bigger and more powerful. And we've seen their executives testify in front of Congress. Uh, there was the, the you talk about the Packers and Stockyards Act and, um, and executive orders. And yet it seems that the consolidation is still so powerful. What is the biggest threat? What should Americans know about consolidation in the meat industry? And, and is it something that can ever be fixed? I've learned through talking to so many different lawyers on all sides of the antitrust debate here that it is really hard to unscramble the eggs that have already been scrambled. That said, there really isn't any sort of statute of limitations on any of these mergers. I mean, an aggressive DOJ, USDA, FTC could really come in and do um, significant work across the food industry, not just in meat, but in meat, it has been really stark. And, you know, the Packers and Stockyards Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act, these were all put in place because there have always been these commodification downward pressures in the meat industry that has created, you know, only a handful, small handful, you know, controlling the power. But that said, there has been significant consolidation just in the past few decades that really has driven this drive towards massive, massive plants. You know, um, for example, in 1997, there were five plants in the beef industry that slaughtered more than 1 million cattle. And that made up, you know, 15%. By 1990, it was two thirds of all cattle produced from only 14 plants. So, you know, plants are getting bigger. They're taking up more of the market share and distributing everything from there. That's how you get a burger that could have a hundred different animals in it ground up together. And so, you know, you have that and merger mania really just and the Reagan administrations, you know, stripping away um, and also like legal appointments from that are really some of the ramifications that we're still seeing in this antitrust issue. But I also write a little bit about, you know, monopsony issues too and how there's been all this downward pressure on the meat packers to control their profits as much as possible mm -hmm. but at the same time there's also been this massive downward pressure from walmart growing and taking up such an enormous share amazon coming into the grocery industry and there's been a decade in the grocery world of major m a lots of consolidation lots of bankruptcies many of the small regional changes either getting swallowed up or going under because they can't compete we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress.
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. My guest, by the way, is Chloe Sorvino. Can I ask, how did this consolidation affect the supply chain? We heard so much about the supply chain during the pandemic, but it was usually in the media context of blaming politicians for shortages. How does the consolidation actually impact what people can find in their supermarkets? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take Smithfield and pork and is that as an example, they had one major plant that was one of the early hotbeds of pandemic outbreak. And there was a lawsuit from a Jane Doe that I write about in my book because she sued to try to keep the workers off the line or make sure they at least had the actual CDC requirements in place at this plant. And this plant was so massive that it accounted just one plant for more than 5% of the country's total pork supply. And, you know, Smithfield, you have, and Tyson too, but you have Smithfield CEO, top executives, lobbyists working hand in hand with state, local, and federal government to keep plants open, uh, writing policies, lots of different levels of lobbying, and at the same time, complaining and stoking fears among American shoppers that they're not going to have any bacon on shelves. Yeah. But really, their exports were increasing and pretty much higher than ever before increased 25% from the year before and more than 750 100,000 tons were exported alone from Smithfield just in Unreal. those few months yeah uh, this is the this is the awkward part in the conversation where i have to ask you to um explain a bit for those who don't know about the life threatening working conditions that are so pervasive in the meat industry cuz i i felt like COVID was a chance where the average American got to hear a little bit about how bad it was. And then it seems that right away they cleaned up the story and it just left the front pages. Thousands and thousands of workers in meatpacking plants got sick. They were forced into the front lines. And I think the pandemic was a big moment because there was this fear. There was this potential that people weren't going to have enough food at the same time that there were these really long lines at food banks. Um, and a lot of food insecurity happening. But then you also have this situation emerging where you get the problem for me really is that, you know, you see this industry has always really targeted some of the most marginalized and vulnerable workers in the industry. Yeah. These are 
many, many refugees. There's many different folks that are in these plants and there's lots of immigration issues. And that's so many different languages, obviously, also is a way for managers to keep workers hidden or not be able to have their stories yeah. be heard. And these plants are have become very violent. And I have a whole chapter about the human cost of eating meat, particularly because there are just so many cases and so many different lawsuits and so many stories I read and heard about in terms of harassment, discrimination, horrible, horrible violence. There is a story with a class action for a Pilgrim's Pride plant in Texas I write about where a pregnant worker was forced to work on the line and ended up having a miscarriage. It was just one of the most truly devastating losses. And that was just one of a class action with 17 other folks, you know, alleging some of the most heinous racial discrimination I've ever read about. And so there's that aspect. But there's also just the aspect of human health, too. Yeah. These are very dangerous environments. I get alerts from, you know, different OSHA reports about, you know, amputations, people falling into bats, oh. having different, you know, emergencies all the time. And these are just simple, simple things. And often these reports are pointing out that this is maintenance that didn't need to happen. These are issues that didn't need to happen. And then you also have the worker, the other hidden worker health Rhett that really is never talked about, which I really wanted to, to go into, which is superbugs. I'm yes. one of the journalists who's been in many plants, and it was shocking for me to hear about, you know, how I also have this too. But really, if you've been in a plant, if you've even worked a plant for one summer job or for a short period when you're getting on your feet, when you're coming to America for a few months, yep. you know, you could contract a superbug at any point and you will, you could never know. Um, there's very limited research on this, but there is, I, I spoke with pretty much the premier experts on this and they track the epidemiology like anthropologically. And really what happens is that superbug can be inside of you and it might never get ignited or it could get ignited far later in your life. Perhaps you get a pneumonia or a cancer or something else that all of a sudden is inflammation that ignites the superbug and maybe you're in the hospital and something else. And all of a sudden now you have an antibiotic resistant disease that the hospital is unable to treat and it can yeah. really apparently turn a lot of these cases really quickly and it's something that's also not really even tracked in the numbers because it's very hard to track when antibiotic resistance is also playing a role in um, some of these cases and yeah. so you know workers really just are getting shorted and on all ends of this and people really have no idea how harsh the ramifications for these workers are. I also write about the worker wage manipulation cases that uh, really have even more accelerated more since the book came out um, with some big consent decree signed. But there have just been schemes in the chicken industry for decades to subjugate workers and to make sure their wages, benefits, health care uh, is just as low as possible yeah. to make sure these meatpackers are holding as many profits as possible. So that's when you see people who are sick and terrified to stay home from work. So they come in and handle the food that people will be eating and the cycle perpetuates itself and endangers so many more people all in the name of a little bit more profit. And we just saw this story yesterday about Packers Sanitation Services, Inc. Uh, uh, Chris, my producer, just sent this one over about they're, they're the company that was um, employing dozens of miners to clean slaughterhouses in Grand Island, Nebraska, overnight on a graveyard shift. And they just reached a, an agreement with the feds, I guess, to avoid jail time. But... <laughs> The damage is already done and these sort of things Absolutely. keep on happening and we only hear about it once an agreement's been settled. I mean, you know, 
we can talk about how few politicians or media figures push back against this, but you've actually been, you know, on the ground talking with people who work in the industry. I'm very curious how the people you spoke with are pushing back against this Goliath on a personal or a local level. It can happen in so many ways. And, you know, one of the most painful interviews I did during the pandemic was with a worker at Foster Farms who was talking about how it was just terrifying to be continuing to work on the line and to be with all of his fellow workers online while at the same time he comes home and he doesn't have chicken in his freezer. And there's just this massive accessibility and vulnerability that the chicken industry and the meat industry overall just continues to ignore. But there really is a way for folks to take a more active role in how they get their food. And I try to write about that with some optimism because the more you can make sure your dollar is being felt by the producers, by the local, you know, supply chain networks that are going to probably feed you more in a crisis than a billionaire would. Right. I think that's at the end of the day, the systems we need to be supporting. We really only have a decade. We need to make these changes before 2030. There's irreversible damage and we don't have enough time to start from scratch. We also need to make significant change now because also these systems are hopefully re-regionalized and better, stronger infrastructure in different communities. You know, hopefully they'll be able to work out the kinks in the next few years before the climate crisis gets even worse. It's already yeah. really bad and it's already impacting so many harvests, drought across half the country, persistent. It's It's been atrocious already and it's only going to get worse for and impacting all levels of our food system. And you do talk about many solutions in the book. I want to let listeners know you don't say everybody has to go vegan. That's not the point of the book. But but and you do talk a lot about the importance of local grocery stores and, and local farming. Um, but I'm curious, you know, with with all that in mind, what is good meat at this point? One fifth of the way through the 21st century. Does good meat even exist? What I found through my research is that, is that there's always going to be a place for meat in the future it has to look completely differently from what it looks like today. Meat demand needs to go down, not increase right now. Consumption projections are still increasing, but pollution situations with CAFOs, confinement, those all need to end. But there are places for meat in the future, particularly because there are some environments that either are so rocky or they're so degraded from industrial cropland monoculture over the generations that some soils actually can't be rehabilitated without manure and hooves and grazing. Again, I think it's going to look completely differently and it's going to take up a far smaller place on many folks' plates. Yeah. But there's a place for meat in the future. It really rarely exists now and there's a huge privilege and access problem because where it does exist, it's almost always has to be completely sought out through a lot of research and it's almost all quite expensive, almost all for at home use, rarely can be sought out at restaurants, but you know, white oak pastures, you can't say what they haven't done isn't truly astonishing. Maui Nui is a super interesting subscription box that's based in Hawaii and they're selling venison, which is actually, you know, and has cultural significance, but is invasive on the island and they're hunting it essentially, but using the USDA so they can have it be approved for commercial use and are using mobile slaughterhouses. There's definitely other situations with bison I write about in the book. 
things that are increasing environment workers need to be a part of the solution every you know part of the supply chain really does retailers buyers distributors but there is a possibility that we can have meat in the future it just again it's going to look completely different well then let me let me close with the big question i mean uh, you know alternative proteins could play a very significant role in the future of food what role do you see plant-based meat playing in the greater food industry I wanted to really address that question because there was billions and billions of dollars flowing into this sector. And I speak with so many different investors from my work at Forbes that I was on this end of these phone calls, similar to like the billionaires talking about how they just kept aligning their pockets with gold and, and couldn't stop. You know, these investors turning to me and saying, oh, it reminds me of the early days of the Internet and looking at food, looking at the future of food, looking at meat and alternative proteins as this you know, last frontier for investment and trying to make often a short term profit off of that. And I wanted to figure out if a significant amount of adoption actually could make a dent in how much control and power industrialized meat has. And so if 15% of the meat industry was actually alternative protein based or not in the meat industry, that would take out around a third of all cars on the road and, and the emissions equivalent. So that that is significant. However, we're just really not there and we have no ability to looks like to get there right now. Um, you know, sales are far less than 1%. There's been billions right. of dollars used and maybe some would say even wasted. Um, most of the market has already gone bust really, really wow. quickly. I mean, you know, that that's that's horrific, but I want to just highlight what you just said. I mean, if, if they could reach 15% of the total meat industry volume with alt proteins, that would be the equivalent of taking, what, a quarter to a third of all cars off the road? I mean, it's astonishing to think yes, of if we can get people to start not giving up meat, just changing habits, just a little less meat and other things to, to replace it could have such incredible environmental benefits right away. Absolutely. Maybe not the venture-backed brands that are obviously ultra-processed and still using ingredients that are farmed, monoculture, but mushrooms, beans, legumes, whole foods that are a part of a regional food system. I mean, those are the whole foods that we need to continue to support so we can all thrive. Chloe Servino writes for Forbes. Her essential new book is Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. What a pleasure to have you with us. It's such a dark topic, and I thank you for devoting so much of your time and expertise to it. You have done a great service and written a terrific book. Thank you. Oh, I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk about all these important details with you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So for more than 90 years, Abbey Road Studios has been one of the hearts of the music industry, and it has been a beating heart for people who love music. It's known best for one particular band, but these three elegant studios in St. John's would have given us some of the finest classical rock, pop, hip-hop, and soundtrack music 
in the history of audio recording from the Beatles to Shirley Bassey to Pink Floyd to the soundtracks for Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark and even Kanye before the fall. And it was also a familiar neighborhood stop for Mary McCartney, whose father recorded there with two particular bands. Mary is, of course, the acclaimed photographer whose work has been shown in the National Portrait Gallery, the Royal Opera House and London's National History Museum, as well as the Gagosian here in New York. She famously photographed Queen Elizabeth in 2015. She is also the ferocious creative force behind the Emmy-nominated Mary McCartney Serves It Up. I live in a house full of vegetarians, and this show is very popular in my home. She also produced the excellent Wingspan documentary, No One Talks About Enough. And now Ms. McCartney's made a film about the legendary studio of her and our youth. Disney original documentaries, If These Walls Could Sing, which explores the breadth, diversity, and ingenuity of Abbey Road Studios, featuring interviews with everybody who ever lived. It's a pleasure to welcome Mary McCartney back. Wow, I absolutely love your introduction. You know, the nice thing about this is I only have people on who are interesting. I, wow, I get to... that makes me seem so accomplished. You know when you kind of go to bear your day by day, like, oh, I need to do something else, I haven't done enough, but that makes me sound fabulous. Well, I mean, but is that something you live with? Because you, of all people, uh, you know, would would get to live in that world of always having to prove yourself and yet at the same time, you know, putting together such a really lovely body of work and achievement. Yeah, I um, you know what? I'm lucky. I've had, I think in my career, it sounds so amazing when you say it, but I've kind of, I haven't gone gone out and gone, I'm going to do a cooking show. I'm going to do a documentary. So what I love about how my career's taken place is like I've been a photographer forever and then these other projects sort of come my way and I, it's all about the adventure for me same yeah I mean, so it's an adventure and chemistry like working with people and you know so that it's it's very exciting it's been a great year for me but it's also you know a sign of your talent and how much they value your work the the name would only get you so far when you were brought in to photograph the queen in 2015 yeah I mean, my God, when I was a kid and flew to London for the first time to meet you and do a show with someone you're related to, Mm -hmm. no one could believe it. For you, it must have been such an incredible experience, but also, you know, such a a confirmation of your own skills and passion. That actually really was because I, uh, I met the woman that was running the press office for Buckingham Palace for the royal family as you do and um, they invited me in to Buckingham Palace so already that was enough because I like their offices are in there so just being on the inside looking out at the gates was just so cool Uh, but then they said look we want we want somebody that has a very informal relaxed style because it was a photograph to release from the palace to mark Queen Elizabeth as longest reigning Mm -hmm monarch and so they wanted no pomp and ceremony and they wanted my style so actually it was a huge compliment because they were really looking for me um and then with this documentary similarly i feel like they've been trying to make this documentary about abbey road for a while and i've heard about you know it happening and it just in the end it sort of came knocking on my door and because i've always sort of tried to make you know make my own career without utilizing my surname Mm -hmm. at first I kind of shied away from it John Batsuk the producer emailed me and was like have you thought of he did wait uh searching for Sugarman and first day of September he's like an Oscar nominee Oscar winning Oscar winning yeah um producer and and uh and he said I've got this Abbey Road documentary and I was like oh no and then I was like he actually convinced me but I am I'm very happy I did it 
so am I. I mean, this is a gorgeous film. And well, I was know, being silly to to refuse in the first place. No. I had a little word with myself, and I was like, Mary, you want to do a documentary. You want to direct more. This is somewhere that you love. You and I didn't know it was ninety years, so I had so much to learn. So I kind of put any of my reservations aside and said, thank you very much. I would love to do this documentary. Well, after a year where we all watched this 12-hour documentary of yeah. the Beatles working in Twickenham Studios and working in Apple Studios and then realizing, oh, well, gee, what about Abbey Road where all these great bands from Pink Floyd to Oasis recorded, where John Williams recorded some of his finest soundtracks. Mm. And what I love about the film is that you use you as an entry into the movie, it starts off as being your recollection, but then you sort of recede and your structure is that it begins with who you are and talking with your dad and how this place was a fixture of your childhood. Yeah. The, the photo of the pony <laughs> yeah. is what really got me. I've got this little introduction before the beginning credits, before you get into the documentary. It's sort of a way, it kind of happened quite late in the process, but it became, I was talking to my editor and, and he was like, look, I really think this will help personalize it and then I can kind of go away I don't need to narrate it it sort of tells its own story and then at the end I come back to sort of yeah close the close the narrative but um the reason for doing it was to show but you know to do a documentary you do need to do something you're passionate about and it shows my history with Abbey Road not from 1931 but probably from like <laughs> 1969 but but also on a on a structural level just yeah. as a filmmaker watching it I'm looking at how you pieced it together and you begin the movie in such a warm way it's you and your dad talking in this building yeah. and then it goes from there into the history of the actual place but your passion remains and it's interesting to me the artists that you wanted to be featured mm. from Kate Bush to Kanye to mm. John Williams. What was that process like for you? I mean, do you get on the phone and say, Elton, Ringo, come over? I wanted, no, uh, the process was I had a team and I sat with them and I was like, like, I need to learn the history of Abbey Road. So I went from 1931, I wrote down everything, stuck it around the walls, learnt what had, who had recorded there, what big albums had been there, learnt all about all the different genres. And then from there it was like, how are we actually going to make this into one feature long documentary that's not eclectic and has heart and emotion to it? Um, so I suppose going back to what you were saying earlier, the beginning is a way of kind of personalising it and making, giving it a home feel exactly. um, and a personal touch because the space of Abbey Road itself is a very safe place and it sort of like has a home family feel to it even though it's this epic recording studio when you walk inside you feel safe and um, I wanted that to come across I mean this documentary really is for the viewers and for all those people that I see going over the zebra crossings who mm -hmm. never get the chance to walk in and every time I walk in even through directing and doing all the research for this I've been in even more than ever um, it just made me love it even more because it's like I'm like hey team the guy on reception you know Lester all the team so yeah it just it made me love it even more and I wanted to bring the viewer the opportunity to feel that they've been to Abbey Road in a relaxed way without being like you know all singing all dancing it's sort of more <laughs> like come in and hang out well I mean the first time I ever went to the building uh, Alan Parsons showed me around and what you notice the most besides the fact that it's actually much bigger than it appears on the street yeah. 
that there's two Abbey Roads. There's the interior where the artists make the work, and then there's the exterior, which belongs to the fans of the yeah. music. The graffiti on the wall is such an iconic part of it. And, mm-hmm. of course, all the tourists taking photos at a crosswalk nonstop all non-stop. day long. But to me, it, it fed into a real theme in the movie, which is that of being a sacred place, a mm-hmm. spiritual place. Obviously, you see the devotees come and pay homage at the cathedral outside. But what impressed me was how so many artists, including Elton and John Williams, talked about the studios themselves as a place of spirituality. Mm. John Williams was incredible, wasn't oh. he? The way he spoke, I was melting. I got the vibe that him. he was the one that you fangirled for. Oh my goodness. I was literally, it was just sort of talking to him. I was sort of melting into my chair, just like I could listen to him and speak to him all day. I mean, He's yeah. so eloquent and so succinct. And also because he represented more because as you say you go to Abbey Road and it's in St John's Wood quite a residential area of London and you walk up you see all the people outside and it's not just like a tourist trap it's sort of like there's real feeling like they've come and made this pilgrimage because they really care about the music and there's something emotionally driving them to, to make this journey and then when you go in, it's the facade is a res- the front part and the reception is a residential building. And then the garden was turned into in 31, was made into these big studios. As you said, there's three main studios. One is for the big orchestral, mm-hmm. um, mainly classical recordings. Three is the one that's smaller and does change a lot, like it's just been revamped as well. So that's more where Pink Floyd are famous for doing dark side of the moon and then studio two is more the rock and pop which is fame and sort of smaller ensemble classical but that's what studio two is kind of the Beatles studio if you say um but it's huge when you go in so big that when they were having financial troubles when loads of recording studios were closing studio one the big orchestral one they were like should we make it into a car park or cut it up into different studios or That's what surprised me the most, the late 70s, early 80s. Mm. I mean, Indiana Jones kind of saved Abbey Road. Isn't that great in (laughs) the documentary? It's like, yes, Indiana Jones. The movie, the contract that Ken Townsend did, Ken Townsend did in the, um, was it 70, I can't remember the year now. Which one? Finished. But the deal he did with Denim, with the um, music publisher, um, the film deal, Mm -hmm. uh, he heard that the, um, he heard there was a big, film stage in Denham outside of London that was closing down losing its lease so he kind of pivoted got in touch with the producer said come to Studio One but then they weren't they'd done no film so he quickly had to get a projector a screen put it into Studio One because the orchestras need to be able to play to the movie playing so yeah it was super exciting then they had Star Wars franchise Lord of the Rings franchise all of the Harry Potters like so many so many films and so many great live music events as well over the years we're going to take a very quick break we'll be right back this is progress I'm John Fugel saying this is progress after dark my guest is Mary McCartney You know, what was also very humbling was seeing how many of these notoriously feuding bandmates spoke beautifully and fondly of each other in the film. Hearing Roger Waters speak movingly about David Gilmour, hearing the Gallagher brothers speak so Mm -hmm. movingly, it seems that 
it's a sacred space and that these artists can put aside their human differences mm. in service of the creation. Well, I think it shows how, when I uh, I just approached people, I kind of, there was so much to do. Like, as I say, there were post-it notes and bits of paper written and scribbled on all stuck on the walls. Like, what should we include? Pink Floyd had to be in because they'd done Dark, Dark Side of the Moon. I wanted Oasis because they kind of showed that more Britpop time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I needed... John Williams covered my film and George Lucas. But um, to get David Gilmore and Roger Waters, it was sort of like, I've, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like there's acrimony in that. I feel like that even though you know historically they exactly. don't speak to each other, I feel like there's a real respect for the creativity and for the Abbey Road experience. And they talk so fondly. I loved them talking about Sid Barrett. Me too. And giving him a moment because, you know, you could see he he was a genius that you sort of left and never came back. And they're still grieving him. I mean, it's also really humbling to see artists like Elton and Jimmy Page talk about being session players for hire in this building. You know, That's we where don't, they cut their teeth. That's Elton, where they learned their Elton trade. Elton recorded no hits there. Yeah. And yet it's so tied into his entire yeah. musical development. Yeah. And he learned to play like, you know, he sounded like Elton John. Then he was Reginald Dwight. Mm -hmm. And he played on the famous song, He Ain't Heavy. Is that big in America? Yeah, oh, yeah. And I managed to get the master recording. So in the documentary, he's talking about it. They're playing the song. And then we can take it down so you just hear his piano it's and it beautiful. sounds like Elton John playing piano it's freaky it's all like 63 or something and uh, it sounds like Elton John not Reginald Dwight I mean one of the best moments in the movie is in the end when you have the audio of a recording Elton made to your dad I'm not mm. going to spoil what it is but it's worth seeing the whole movie on my movie little phone <laughs> just for that one little scene and I also wanna... I love the Jimmy Page story with uh, Dame with, Shirley Bassey Goldfinger because I'd heard that story as folklore. I heard like Shirley Bassey was singing Goldfinger and she holds the note for so long and then collapsed. But I didn't have any footage of it. And then we interviewed better. and we saw the session sheets. And we were like, oh my goodness, Jimmy Page was the guitar player on that session. <laughs> and so we had to talk to him and he's, he was like, oh, the histrionics and Shirley, she was amazing. And he's, he, he saw it firsthand. So he was able to tell the viewer all about it. I also want to thank you for including the Kanye West footage. Because yeah. when I was watching it, I kept wondering why it was so moving. And uh, for me, it was yeah. so moving to see Kanye as an artist again, which yeah. has largely been forgotten in the culture. But I think that spoke to what the film was really about. It defies the politics of the moment. It defines whatever's going on in the world. It's just about the creativity. Yeah. It's about the spirit of creation that happens there. And the, the Kanye bit's really moving. I'm glad it's left in. Well, it the thing is, it's a difficult one because I absolutely, you know, hate any kind of racism Same. or anti-Semitism. So it's difficult because there's everything that's been going on. But that is a vintage, a real vintage like that. That interview was done like over 10 years ago mm -hmm. and it's very much set within Abbey Road. But I can't lie. It, it ha I did have an uncomfortable moment because I was like, this is you know, this is not what we want to represent because actually the point of putting it in in the first place was to show the range and breadth of the music that has been, has been recorded there and included there. So That's why I'm glad it is. I yeah. went through the same problem. I'm like, how do I feel about this? But honestly, I think it's dynamite yeah. you put it in because it is about the art and the creativity. And, and Well, again, I have to admit, if, was I was, if I was cutting it now, I'm not sure I it probably, w well, it wouldn't be in, but yeah. this picture, you know, the art of filmmaking 
because you know it was this was actually locked graded sound mix was done you know at the beginning of the of year course. so yeah but I appreciate that you understand it because my oh, yeah. hope is that people will look at it and go this is something this is you know from a, a bygone time and it just shows a very different version and creativity and uh, the breadth of, of the music that Abbey Road has, has had passed through their doors. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't hijack the narrative. It actually, I think, lends so much character to why the space is special. Mm. And that's what the movie's about, not mm. about this particular guy and what happened to him a decade after recording there. Yeah. I mean, it's such a short piece within the whole documentary, but obviously now, because of everything that's going on, it's, it's definitely... Something that um, is, you know, you can't help thinking about it when you watch it. But I think that, you know, it's also just before in the section where Kate Bush is, which is one of the moments that I'm so proud of. And I didn't know she filmed her video there. She filmed, but the thing is, Kate Bush doesn't do any interviews and doesn't, you know. And so I, I managed to get in touch with her and just say, look, please. I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't ever want to make somebody do an interview. I don't want to, I don't want to twist anyone's arm, but I'm like, you're so important for the history of Abbey Road. You like female artists, you produced your music, you directed your first video there, you wrote there, like you're such a creative talent and you obviously love the place because she'd go back and like go to football with the manager, Ken Townsend, things like that. I'd hear all these stories. So I'm like, please just record like a few lines, which she did. So hearing her voice talking about Abbey Road, I think is magic. It, it's it's a beautiful sequence. I, I have you. to ask, what's, what's next for you after this? I mean, I want to see you make more documentaries. I would love to make more documentaries. I'm not sure what yet, but uh, I'm not sure what what will come through the door. But I absolutely am obsessed, and I will definitely be making more. I love watching documentaries. I'm a big documentary person. Same here. But I, my my compliments on how you structured this because it Thank easily you. could have been just a and then this happened functional yeah. kind of uh, a propaganda film. That's exactly what I was saying to the team when we started. I had a very small team with a great researcher, a great story producer, a great producer, amazing editor. I think you'll agree that the editing, the editor, I waited for him. He was so good. He's more of a drama editor than a music documentary editor. So I think you know he really he and I had a very good relationship in the edit room so yes we i was like look i learned all these really interesting facts about abbey road but it would be a very interesting history lesson to go bam 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 but actually when you're sitting watching something you want more emotion and more you know more feeling so that was like how do we structure it that will kind of guide hold the hand of the viewer and take them on the journey so that was what i wanted to do well and again i i I applaud that it's the film that's not all about the Beatles, although the songs that are focused on are amazing on how your blues was made. They used and every single inch of that place. Great. But what I loved was the footage of your mom. And yeah. for me, I, I felt that this movie had such an appreciation of her magic. Mm. And for me, it was so wonderful to see her performing and recording there. And I realized that you have a connection to Abbey Road no one else has through Linda. Yeah. I'll always put her in everything that I do as much as I can. And she's she and I had a very similar creative eye and sensibility. And I think um, through osmosis, I've kind of approached like the interviews in the documentary. I have a similar style. She would when she was taking pictures of people, people would be relaxed. They wouldn't recoil and feel stressed. And um, I think I've just learned through her, through observing her, sort of try and keep your subject relaxed and calm and you'll get a better interview or a better picture. And I do, I am, one thing I'm really proud of with the documentary is the the casual kind of informal tone of the interviews. I think, 
I yes. think that that was I was very pleased with that. I mean, as someone who grew up loving her photography, her, yeah. her portraits of Hendrix are just so moving. Seeing the kind of filmmaker you have become is uh, is very very inspiring, and I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, Mary McCartney is the director. The film is If These Walls Could Sing. It premieres in December on Disney Plus exclusively. Do yourself a favor. This is one you can watch with anyone, the whole mm. family, anyone of any background. It's a really special film. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.